Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Just one of three texts in the New Testament that mentioned the resurrection of Jesus Christ and when he warned his disciples. Actually, the other text is found in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 17. But these, these three texts tell us that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and there he was going to die. In this text it says that the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes and they will scourge him and crucify him. He uses the term, the Son of Man, referring to himself in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13 when he's referring to the uh, his death, burial, and resurrection again. He mentions the fact that he says, I, the Son of Man, am going to do it. So he identifies himself there, but generally when Jesus is talking about himself, he uses the third person singular term, the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now that particular reference takes us back to the Old Testament times. In particular, in the book of Ezekiel, when God was speaking to Ezekiel, he, he was calling him the Son of Man. And I think that term applied over 90 times in the book of Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophet, where Ezekiel was, was referred to as the Son of Man. But the most important text to us is the, the statement made in Daniel chapter 7, and verse 13 and 14, when Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So those who believe in the Old and New Testament, those who believe in Jesus Christ, look back at this text in Daniel, which is over 500 years before Jesus came along, and they say, well, the one who's being brought before the Ancient of Days is called the Son of Man, but he is in fact the Son of God. He's Jesus. That's who he's talking about. He was the Son of Man, and He was, in fact, the Son of God. Both personages in the flesh. Jesus of Nazareth. In John 1 at verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's referring to Jesus. Jesus is called the Word. At verse 14 in John chapter 1, the text says, The Word was made flesh. So here the Word is the Son of God. The Word is God. But this text says in verse 14, the Word was made flesh. So Jesus was the personification of two entities, two beings, man and God, combined in one flesh. It says, We beheld His glory, the glory of, his, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. In Luke chapter 3 at verse 21 through 22, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, 
praying and the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven who said, Thou art my beloved son and you I am well pleased. So the father, when Jesus was baptized of John the Baptist, the dove came upon the Holy Spirit came upon the Son of God, Jesus, in the form of a dove and a voice from heaven that identified and verified and decided that this was, for us, the Son of God, God's only Son. He said, I'm well pleased in Him. Now Jesus demonstrated that He was both man and God during His life. Now I'd like for you to follow me very carefully. He's demonstrating Jesus had to show somehow that he was God and man at the same time. But specifically, people had no, no doubt that he was man because he was standing before them in the flesh. But specifically, he had to demonstrate that he was God in the flesh. Not just man, but God in the flesh. Jesus did not say during his lifetime specifically, I am God in the flesh. He didn't say that. He was asked the question one time, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He replied, yes, he was. And that got him killed. His accusers took his life because he said that. But he did say it one time when they asked him, who are you? And why, how, how can you be saying such things? In John chapter 8, he was in a discussion with the Pharisees. And they said, we're the, we're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That's what God said in Genesis or in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And, and God said, tell them and tell the Israelites, tell the Egyptians, tell them all, I am that I am. And that's what Jesus said. Now Jesus didn't say at that point, I am God, but they understood that's what he was saying. So they tried to stone him, tried to kill him. He said, he demonstrated that he was the Son of God, God and man, by his miracles. Now think about it. You think, okay, how would that prove that he was God in the flesh? Because there are a lot of people who are trying to do miracles, trying to heal, a lot of people trying to do different things that were out of the ordinary, supernatural. But how would it prove that he was God in the flesh? I'm going to read a text for you. Luke chapter 5, verse 20. Starts out, we're going to start it out in verse, verse 20, but it starts out because some fellows had brought, a, Jesus was in the house and he was healing people, and some fellows had brought one of their friends, and he was crippled. He was lame. They couldn't get into the house, so they went up on the rooftop. Remember the story? They took some of the roof off, which would seem to me to be pretty extreme. It wasn't rainy weather then, of course, but they, it would rain every now and then. So they took the roof off and they let him down on a pallet into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus then said to the man, here was a sick man, lame man, let, let down on a pallet. When he, when he saw his faith, the man's faith in the pallet, what did he say? He didn't say, get up and walk. He said, he said man, your sins are forgiven you. Wait a minute. He didn't come to get his sins forgiven. He came to walk. But Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven. 
Now listen carefully what's going on. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? They got that right. So they said, Who can forgive sin but God alone? What I'm telling you is that Jesus is proving that he is God in the flesh because of his miracles. Watch. They said, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answering said unto them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk. Obviously, Jesus knew that the harder task was to forgive sins. The easy thing would be to say, Get up and walk. So what did he say? But that ye may know, he said, that the Son of Man, he didn't say the Son of God now, but he was proving that he was the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. That's what he's proving. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus said, I'll show you, if you think it's hard, I'll show you who I am. So he said, that you may know that the Son of Man has power upon earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto you, arise, take up your couch and go into your house. What did he do? He proved that he was the Son of God. How? By forgiving sins. And how did he show that he could forgive sins? By raising this man from his pallet and getting him, giving him the power to walk. So that's one way he was proving he was, demonstrating he was the Son of God and the Son of Man. He also proved it, demonstrated it by his teaching. Now, suffice it to say, at that point, they had never heard anything like what Jesus was teaching. But I'm going to tell you something else. 2,000 years later, neither have we. Neither have we. No one has surpassed the teaching of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the man from Galilee. Nobody has surpassed that doctrine. Nobody. Men have tried, philosophers have tried, thinkers have tried, People down through the ages have tried to surpass his teaching and it's not happened. You know what that does? That proves that Jesus is, was, the Son of God. In John chapter 7, verse 44 through 46, Jesus was teaching in the city of Jerusalem and he was so overwhelming in what he was saying to people and so impressive in what he was saying to people that people were crowding around, not for the miracles necessarily alone, but to hear what he had to say. And so the leaders, the aristocracy of Israel said, we've got to do something about this. He's more popular than we are. They're listening to him, not to us. So they sent soldiers to get him, shut him up and bring him back so they could put a gag on him. The soldiers didn't bring him back. They went and listened to what he had to say. When they came back, it says, some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said unto them, why have you not brought him? They said, why, why didn't you bring him back? We're going to gag this guy. We're going to put him away. We're going to put him somewhere where nobody's going to listen to him anymore. You know what they said? No man ever spoke like this. <laughs> they couldn't. They said, oh, we never heard anything like this in our lives. 
We couldn't bring him back. They knew what was going to happen to him. You know what? You can't gag him today either. He demonstrated his teaching, his character, who he was, by his character. By his character. You know, he's the only man that ever lived on this earth that never committed a sin. Never said a sin. Never thought a sin. Only one ever, ever, ever like that. Think of all the great men and women in your lifetime. Think of all the great men and women of the past. And think of any of them that have never, ever, ever said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, thought the wrong thing. This is the only man that ever did that. Matter of fact, he he, did, he asked them to to say, if if you if you got anything against me, show it, show it. And we have the record of his life: four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Find something in those records that men have have kept of him. Find something's wrong with him. What's wrong with this guy? What did he do wrong? What did he say wrong? How did he act wrong? John eight and verse forty six. Jesus said. To his detractors, he said, which of you convinces me of sin? Who, who convicts me of sin? He opened it up and said, take a look. Show me where I've done wrong. Show me where I've said wrong. Show me what I've thought wrong. Show me how I've acted wrong. He said, if I say the truth, why don't you believe me? He also demonstrated that he was the Son of God. He was God and man. man of, son of man, Son of God. By his power. Now, I, I know, you know, that he performed a lot of miracles. He made the blind see. That's overwhelming. In my mind, I cannot conceive of that. I just cannot conceive of it. I cannot conceive of a blind person who's been blind from their youth being able to open their eyes and see daylight, see colors, see people they love, see people, associate people with the voices they've heard. I can't imagine that happening. I just can't. I can't imagine a person hearing that has never heard before. Hearing the, hearing the birds sing in the trees. Never heard, heard it before. Hear the sounds that they always wanted to hear of someone saying, I love you. Never, never heard, never heard that before. I, I can't conceive of someone having their hearing restored for the first time. Now not only can they hear, they can talk. You know, if you can't hear, you can't talk. You you knew it, didn't you? Even though you've got a tongue, you've got you've got you've got a voice box and so forth, you can't talk, you can't express things because you can't hear. Those those people who are deaf, if they're not totally deaf, they can make some voice sounds. But I can't imagine in my mind of someone born deaf, never heard a word, never heard a syllable, never heard the water. Bubble and gurgle in the brooks. Never heard. Never heard the wind blow. Never heard the trees swish. And all of a sudden, can hear all those lovely sounds. Just completely. I can. I can. But there's something more powerful than all of this, and that is Jesus had power over the devils. When he demonstrated his power over a demon, he demonstrated that he was God in the flesh. Doctors can sometimes restore partial blindness, partial deafness. Sure they can. Can sometimes help people rehabilitate and walk who haven't been able to walk before, restore some muscle movement, restore some nerve damage, 
that only Jesus could take the devil out of a person, the demon that had been tormenting them. I think I've mentioned this to you before. No other time in history was there a time when devils actually inhabited human beings. That was during the time that Jesus was on this earth. After that, it didn't happen anymore. Before that, it had never happened. History never records anything like this except in that time frame. And during that time frame, Jesus demonstrated he was God in the flesh when he cast these demons, talked to them, made them leave. In Luke chapter 4, verse 33, it says, In the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. He was talking to Jesus. Can you imagine the devil, one of these devils, talking to Jesus? Matter of fact, there's a bunch of them talking. He says, What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are. The Holy One of God. The devil knew who he was. The Son of God. Holy One of God. Jesus demonstrated that he was in fact Son of Man and Son of God when he cast these demons out. Jesus rebuked him saying, Hold your peace. Come out of him. When the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and heard him not. And they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this, that, that with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out every place of the country round about. He demonstrated that he is a son of God by his love. Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. Now we know about love. People sitting in this audience love each other. You love your wives, you love your spouses, you love your children. You, you know what love's all about. We know love. We know what it takes. We know what genders it. We know what stirs it up. We know what accomplishes it. We, we know all about love. But Jesus had, because He was the Son of Man and the Son of God, He had a love that is beyond anything we know. Really. Romans 5, verse 6-8 says, When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the bad guy. He bad, died for the bad woman, bad gal, bad guy. He died for the repulsive, for the ignominious. He died for all those who were despiteful people, terrible people, us. While we're yet in our sins, He died for us. Greater, greater love has no man than that. The ultimate definition that Jesus, however, is the Son of Man and the Son of God came in His resurrection. When He came out of the grave. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness was Jesus in the flesh. Son of Man, Son of God. God was manifested in flesh. Justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. John 1.14 says, The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. There's our chart. Let's see if I can get it. That's our greatest enemy, you know what? That's the one thing we can't overcome. Right there. 
could have put an urn up there too, I guess, full of ashes. But that's it for an empty urn. His resurrection from the dead was a sign that he was the one that God sent to save us from this, from the open grave. That's our that's our enemy. But none of us are going to escape it. He's appointed unto man wants to die. We're going to die. And there's no escaping it. And it hovers over us like a dark cloud. We know sometimes we can move that cloud aside and forget about it and think, no, we're never going to die. When we're young especially, That that uh, that's part of our thinking. Certain of the scribes in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 through 40, says, certain of, the, certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answering, saying, Master, we would see a sign from you. He answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. You remember that? Jonah went to Nineveh, preached repentance. He said, This is the only sign you're going to get. He said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man, that's he's talking about himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus told his apostles, I just try to envision it. He told his apostles he was going into that hole in the ground, going to be covered up. Three days later, he's going to get up, hole, walk away. That's what he said. He began to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, be raised the third day. That's in Matthew 16. Matthew 17, he says the same thing. Matthew 20, our text, he said the same thing. He said, they're going to beat me. They're going to scourge me. They're going, they're going to put me to death. Put me to death. Die. And I'm going to come back. Now the only one we know about Specifically, that they knew about at that time. Of course, it was the man in the Old Testament was raised from the dead. But it was sort of an obscure raising from the dead. But they knew about Lazarus, and they had tried to get him out of their sight too because Jesus had raised him. But Jesus is telling them, He's saying, I'm going to be killed. All the, I'm going to be mutilated. They're going to put me in the grave, and I'm, I'm going to come back. The four writers in the account of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recorded the death of Jesus by the popular implement of the cross that was used by the Roman government for capital punishment. These same four men recorded the fiat of his resurrection as he had promised. He came back alive from the grave three days later. Our enemy. Death is the enemy. Grave is the des destination of everyone. And which of us in this audience have not stood by the grave of a loved one and thought, ah, how my heart hurts because they're gone. And how many of us thought we'll never see them ever, ever, ever again? I'm sure that's crossed your mind. I'm sure it has. It's crossed everybody's mind. We just don't figure that. We don't think it's going to happen. Matter of fact, we spend most of our time praying that it won't happen. Then when it does happen, we wonder why it happened or how could God let it happen. But it's part of this world. We're going to die. We're going to go to the grave. 
Jesus said, I am too. But I'm going to come back. See if you can get another. And he did. He came back. After three days, he arose. And the tomb was empty. Now, let me tell you something about the resurrection. The resurrection is the touchstone of your faith. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you do not have any faith. I'm sorry I have to say it that way. That's exactly what the Bible says. If you do not believe that Jesus got up after three days being totally, physically, literally, fleshly dead. I mean dead cold. Morbidly dead. They came in and put spices on him, wrapped him up, put him in a tomb, left him wrapped up like the Jews do. You know, the Jews made sure that they had to put the person away, the dead person away, the day they died. They didn't wait. They didn't wait for an embalming period. The Egyptians did all that sort of stuff. And the Hindus did all that sort of stuff. But not the Jews. They, they got right busy. They picked up the dead, prepared them, put them in the tomb, sealed the tomb. That was it. That day. It was over. It was done. That's what they did with Jesus. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea came and he begged the body of Jesus. So Pilate said, uh, well, go look and let's see. And they went out and saw that the soldier went out and he put the sword in his side. Forthwith came water and blood. He's dead. They were going to break the, break the legs of the prisoners to make sure they were dead. This guy was dead. He was dead. So he took the body of Jesus down from the cross and he had help with another fellow by the name of Nicodemus. Two of the aristocracy of Israel came and took the body of Jesus and took him to a new tomb, never been used, that belonged to Joseph. He was a wealthy man. They put him in his tomb and rolled the stone over. And they, they usually sealed the, the stone so that when the body putrefied, it wouldn't make a, an odor that was unpleasant. Three days later, the stone was rolled aside and Jesus was gone. He had risen. Now the Apostle Paul said it this way. Moreover, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you also received, wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved. Listen. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. He said, I preached something to you, and if you don't keep it in mind, you believed in vain. Your faith is nothing. Okay? I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, it was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. He said, everybody saw him. He was resurrected. He said, this is what I preach. Now get it. If you don't believe it, if you've never come to that conclusion, your faith is vain. It's not going to work. It won't help you. It won't do you any good. Verse 12 in the same chapter. Paul said, now if you're wrestling with this idea of whether or not he rose from the dead, here's the upshot. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? He's saying, if you don't believe Jesus rose, 
that means you don't believe you're going to either. Because Jesus made that promise, didn't he? I am the resurrection of the life. He that believes on me, though we are dead, yet shall he live. And he that lives and believes in me shall never die. That's great. But Paul is saying here, if you don't believe he rose, you're not going to either. He said, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not, if so be that the dead don't raise. So he's making a, an argument that, that is uh, basically based on one fact proves the other fact. If you don't believe you're going to resurrect, you don't believe Jesus did. You don't believe Jesus did. You don't believe you're going to. Well, anyway, so that's that's the overarching concept of our faith that He is the Son of God, that He actually rose from the dead, and the resurrection of the dead of Jesus is the power that is in His Word in the Gospel. That's the power. That's the moving, motivating power. Romans chapter one verse three and four says, "Concerning His Son Jesus Christ our Lord." which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's the power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the belief in that, your faith in that, is the power, the energy that you have in your, of your faith. If your faith begins to flag and flutter and sink... Think about the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the energy of your faith. It, the resurrection is the crowning of Jesus as the King of Kings. He's the one who has all authority. Ephesians 1.20 says, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. God raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. He's the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Why? Because of His resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus is the turning point in your life with God. Did you know that? It's the, We're talking about the overarching fact of the gospel. And the overarching fact of the gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead. And when you believe that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ touches you at the turning point in your life you're giving yourself to Him. Think about it. Romans 6 and verse 3 says, Know ye not, as so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Look what happened. When you were baptized, went down in the water of baptism because you believe in Jesus Christ, you came up out of the water of baptism. It's when the resurrection of Jesus Christ touched you. That's the touchstone. That's where you're touched by the resurrection, by the power of God. That's what he says. You walk in newness of life together in the likeness of his death. We shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. An old man is crucified with him. The body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. It's his personal guarantee, the resurrection that you will be resurrected. That you're going to come back. That's His personal guarantee. His resurrection. Remember Martha said, when Jesus said, uh, when Jesus came and, and her brother Lazarus had died, 
Mary was all upset, and so was Martha. Martha met him at well, while he was coming into town. She said, "If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died." Jesus said, "He'll he'll live again." She said, "Oh, I know he'll live again at the resurrection." You know what Jesus said? He said, "I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He that believes in me," he said. Though he are dead, yet shall he live. He that lives and believes in me shall never die. Wow. A little over 2,000 years, well, a little under 2,000 years ago, maybe 17 or 1,800 years ago, the early church decided that they had to have a, a time of the year to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so they... They reached out. They looked around and said, when, when shall we do this? When shall we, re when shall we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? And so they found a pagan holiday that, that was designed to celebrate the return of spring, the return of the sun from its long, dark house. The spring equinox. So they said, let's do it then. Let's, let's do it then when, when everything is bright and shiny, when the sun is coming back and the clouds have parted. When all the grass is turning green and the flowers are bursting with color in the field and the limbs on the trees are full of leaves and blossoms red and pink and so forth. When everything looks like it's bright and shining and coming alive, let's celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so we have Easter. And we have Easter eggs and Easter bunnies and so forth. And people come out in nice, pretty Easter clothes. Bright, sparkling, clean Easter Bonnets, Easter. I remember when I was a kid, all the ladies were talking about it didn't happen to the boys, but it with the girls. Let's buy them an Easter outfit. Maybe that happened to you. I don't know. So that, that's a good time. Today we're, the world is celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sun is out and the flowers are budding and the wind is warm and gentle. And the grass is green, the trees are in blossom. It's a good day to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you this, let me let me ask you to do this. I, I think there's other times, other days that are really, really, really necessary for you to remember the resurrection of Jesus. I think it's a good time for you to remember him when the when the clouds are dark and lowering. I think it's a good time to remember the resurrection of Jesus when, when your hearts are heavy as lead. It's a good time to remember the resurrection of Jesus when all the trees have lost their leaves and stand bare on the landscape. It's a good time to remember Jesus when the grass is brown and the earth is black. It's a good time to remember Jesus when there's no sun in the sky because you need to remember His resurrection in the bad times. Your faith needs the resurrection of Jesus all the time. And especially in the bad times, remember that He rose and that everything is going to look bad and gloomy and, and dead. But there's a day coming when it's all going to blossom again. When you will be resurrected and the grave will give up its dead and it'll all be over. That's a good time to remember the resurrection. Let's stand and sing the song we have selected.